This is the Commission Church Online. Welcome to our podcast. We want to be a church who brings heaven on earth through the word of God and the love of Christ. I pray this week's message blesses you. Continuing our study in the gospel according to Matthew. So if you've been tracking with us over the last few months or maybe years, uh, we've been in, actually a year, uh, we've been in the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, 28 weeks to be exact will be today. Uh, we are going into part 28 of our study and we're still in chapter number nine. Uh, somebody actually asked me this uh, two days ago in one of our meetings. They said, when are you going to be done with Matthew, I said, good luck with that. I said, do you know where we are? So I, th- I don't know if that's a, I think, Pastor, we need a new series, or I don't know if that was a, we're tired, Pastor, we, we love it, we can't wait for you to continue, or uh, we're going to hate when it's t- I don't know what the reaction was, but we're going to go with it. Amen. Uh, we are in part 28. And uh, I'm excited for what God is going to teach us this morning. Uh, There are a few passages that I would kind of skip today just because we have probably addressed the topic, uh, that particular topic before, or on the other hand, we have, uh, we're probably going to discuss that topic in more length in the future, and we will include that particular passage. It's a few verses that we'll include at a later time. Uh, I think I think I was I was kind of just going through this message this morning, and as I was titling the sermon, I couldn't help but think about the hobbies that I used to have as a little kid. Anybody have any interesting hobbies here? Anybody? One person. I heard somebody say something. Anybody have an interesting hobby? Nobody has hobbies here. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Anybody have hobbies? Let's go with hobby. Let's take the word interesting out. Uh, anybody have hobbies? Okay. What hobby do you have, Alan? You play basketball. Uh, basketball is a hobby. Anybody else? Tennis. Tennis is a hobby. Man, nobody. Eating. Yes, that's great. Thank you. Somebody, somebody said eating. That's my hobby as well. Eating. What's that? Baking. What was that? Breaking stuff? Yeah, breaking stuff. Okay. We need to pray for you, Justin, today. Okay. Just kidding, but, but some people love collecting cards. Some, some people love sleeping. Sleeping's a hobby for some people. Very interesting one, but uh, some, some collect stamps. I used to collect stamps uh, when I was little. Uh, I loved collecting stamps. That would be one of the... Hey, you know what the envelope said to the stamp? Anybody? He said, stick with me and we'll go places. Uh, <clears throat> Anyone have a garden in your backyard? <laughs> That was an app transition. Nissi has a garden. Glavin has a garden. Jason has a garden. Anybody else have a garden? A few other people? Oh, yeah. Meryl's dad has the best. We're going to talk about Meryl's dad's garden here. Anjali is a gardener. Uh, I am a, I'm a self-proclaimed gardener. Uh, you, know, uh, you, you know, there are three different kinds of gardening that you could probably find in uh, America. There's, uh, there's a farm. Uh, where a farmer will, um, you know, will, will look forward to a harvest, they'll plant, and it's somewhat on a large scale. Uh, they do it for their livelihoods. And then there's a homestead where people will, uh, will get serious about farming and they want to grow their own organic vegetables and uh, fruits and all that stuff. The produce that they grow in their own backyard is kind of self-sustaining. 
Uh, they do good with their own uh, produce that they have or they grow uh, in their homes. And so many of you are very good at that. I don't know many of y'all personally, but I know Nisiech is good at it. I know that Meryl's dad has an amazing uh, homestead and he has a self-sustaining garden more than he needs and he just gives it out to the neighborhood and his family and all that. And then you have me. Uh, what is called a hobby farm, okay? It's, it's what you, it's a sorry excuse for a farm. It's a sorry excuse for a garden, uh, but it's a, it's a very expensive affair where you pour, uh, you, you water the garden day after day, sometimes two or three times a week, and you don't get any fruit. You don't get any vegetables. It's, it's one of those frustrating things where you, I'm still learning. One day I'll get there. I'll get to uh, y'all's lev level. But if you have something like a garden, you know how important uh, harvesting is to gardens or how uh, harvest is, how important a harvest is to a homestead or a farm. Uh, and when you think of harvest, really, you think of farmers. Everything rises and falls on how well or how bad the harvest does. What would keep a farmer from either farming next year or not farming from next year depends upon the harvest. A farm can only go so long without a harvest. It can very soon become a hobby farm, a hobby farm if that farm doesn't yield a harvest. See, a hobby farm does not need harvest to exist. It just exists to keep somebody occupied. It's a stress reliever for some people. Some people feel like that's something that they like doing and they do it as something that they do regularly. It's a part of their lifestyle. For me, I love just going into the garden and checking on my vegetables. And, and no matter how many different vegetables and kinds of vegetables I have, uh, there's only one kind of vegetable. Okra is the only thing that will grow. Every day I get four pieces of okra from my garden. Nothing else will grow for some reason. Y'all got to pray for me. But I'm afraid that many of our churches have become hobby churches. I'm afraid that many of us have become hobby Christians. I want to title my message, The Hobby Church. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing our study in the book of Matthew. And we're going to verse number 9, verse 35. But so I, want to, I want to discuss for a few minutes how important harvest is. See, harvest time was one of the most happiest times in the year of the year in the Philistine calendar. For the Philistines, for the Israelites, uh, it, was, it was filled with joy in Psalms 126, verse 5 and 6. We see the psalmist talking about the power of the harvest and how there is rejoicing and there is joy in harvest. Usually the harvest time was marked with festivals and feasts and, and religious events. I want to contest this morning that uh, you show me a church without harvest and I'll show you a church without joy. Harvest is somehow connected to joy and the love and celebration of sorts. See, Jesus is all about fruit and harvest. I want to say today and this morning that Jesus is not pleased with the lack of harvest. Jesus is not pleased with Christians that don't produce fruits. In fact, fishing without catching fish was something that Jesus didn't approve of. In Luke chapter 5, we read uh, about a bunch of disciples that went and tried catching fish. It was like a bunch of us that went a few months ago to catch fish. And we were out there for four, four hours or five, no, not, no, six hours. I don't know how many hours. But the first two hours, we didn't catch anything. We were getting so frustrated and we were like calling. We were like saying, Jesus, you got to help us today. You got to come on this boat. 
And finally, we ended up catching a few fish. And the Bible says that John, John actually says in his account that they actually caught 153 fish. And for that many men to be in the boat and catch that many fish at one time, that was awesome. That was great. Another gospel writer says they caught as much as they couldn't contain. Like, like, like productivity and fruit and harvest is important to Jesus. Jesus talks about this empty banquet table in Luke chapter 14. And, and the people that were invited didn't come. And, and, and Jesus says, the man looks at his, his servants and says, go to the byways and the highways and invite people because he does not like the concept of emptiness. Jesus teaches us the concept of sowing and reaping and how there is some seed that goes go and, and fall on bad ground. Jesus talks about the fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. Jesus talks about the lost sheep that, that was not brought into the fold and the shepherd going after that which was lost. He talks about the lost coin that was not sought and found. But somebody has to go and search for it and find it. Jesus talks about witnessing with no response where you go and he says, you got to go and witness about me and if people don't accept it and receive it, shake it off and walk off. He talks about productivity and the importance of productivity. And here in Matthew chapter 9... A good harvest that is not reaped is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about our system and the way we do church and the way we do the ministry and the way we live our Christian lives that are less productive. He's saying, man, the harvest is plenty. So uh, Jesus is just done healing two blind men in verse 27 to 31. Jesus heals this a mute man from verse 32 to, to 34, and, and, and we'll deal with those passages in, in future uh, situations, but I want to draw attention to verse 35 to verse 38. And the Bible says this, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Church, I can't begin to explain how important harvest is to God. Numbers are important to God. We talked about this earlier. Numbers define us. If you look at our everyday lives, I can tell you numbers define us. They categorize us. Numbers are, uh, they define the fabric of our culture. Our relevance is calculated by age. Our beauty is measured by pounds. Worth is determined by dollars. Numbers are important. Numbers dictate how popular you are. How many followers you have on Instagram. And how many friends you have on Facebook how successful you are, what your achievements are, how po popularity is dictated by so many things to the fact where today social media calls them influencers. If you have enough people following you, if you have enough people looking up to you, you're an influencer. What does success look like? Does it look like fancy cars? Does it look like houses? Does it look like the nicest clothes? Is that what it means to be successful? It's hard, man, the pressure is so much, and it's so hard living in a culture where we are always measured by success. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus and God is very particular about success and numbers himself. 
He talks about Christian productivity and says that Christians are not supposed to be just, just dull, are not supposed to be, you know, just, just quiet and not productive. For the Christian, your biggest achievement of success is graded on a different scale. It's not on degrees. It's not on achievements. Do you know that the greatest achievement for God the Father was when Jesus died on the cross? That's when God fully said, this is my son and I am well pleased, not only when he was baptized, but that, that, that proud father looking at his son because he has achieved that which God has called him to do. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, the greatest achievement is when you say yes to Jesus and when you follow Jesus. That's achievement. That's success. Our rewards are different for the Christian. Achievement and success is not cars and homes, but gems on a crown that are rewarded with words, well done, my good and faithful servant. But Jesus is still about numbers. This is important to understand. He says, he, he looks at his disciples and he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Not just one nation or two nations or three nations. He's saying you can count them and all the nations, I want you to go. Numbers matter to Jesus. John 3, 16, the Bible says, for God so loved the world, numbers matter to Jesus. He didn't just say Christians or believers or a select 144,000. No, he didn't say any of those numbers. He said, I love the entire world. And the mandate on us then is, is, the, is, is every person that is in your world coming to know Jesus? Do we have that burden that every person should and must know Jesus? And Jesus is saying, man, the harvest is plenty. But the laborers... The laborers, the workers are few. Church, if we truly want to see God to increase the harvest, we have to ask God to increase the workers. Now, here's the thing. Each one of us sitting in this room are workers, but some of us don't know it. Some of us shy away from it. Some of us, some of us don't want to know it. Some of us are like, Lord, I, that's not for me. It's for Pastor Ashish. See, the early church was a church that was on the move. The Bible says these were men and women that turned the world upside down. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Thessalonians, we studied this, we studied the book of Thessalonians. Sadly, today, instead of us turning the world upside down, we get turned upside down by the world. We get influenced by the world that we are supposed to influence. Because our idea of popularity and our idea of acceptance is wrapped up in this idea that the world says is an influencer. And, and you are an influencer if you do this and this and this and this. But God says you and I are called to be influencers in this world that we live in. That's why he calls us the light. And that's why he calls us the salt. We have the ability, church. And, and, and today, like, ne like never before... The technology that we have today, we live in an age of opportunity. The opportunity is unparalleled. Like, do you know what Paul could have done if he had an iPhone? Like, do you, like, do you know what Paul could have done more if he had Instagram and Facebook Live? Come on, somebody. Am I talking to somebody? Like, the, the, the power that we have that we can harness is so much. But we as a people of God have to come back to focus on what is important, church. Yet the enemy has flooded the market with imitations. So many preach, but there's no, hey, not a lot of preachers will say, hey, there's hell. 
The reality of hell is not there in many of the preachings today and the teachings today. Christianity today is reduced. It's all about prosperity. And as long as the prosperity gospel is preached, we're good. And people love that. They love feeling good. And when you get up from a Sunday morning message, you should feel nourished and encouraged. And you should leave like, man, I feel like a hundred bucks. It's not about, Lord, cut me, believers who get five. Like, like we, 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 we're in a church today or we're in a time today that believers and church folk think that we need to get fired up over social action, boycott, or protest, or, or, or all these things are important to us in the church rather than the main thing, which is go ye therefore and be my witnesses. Like when? Like I'm trying to think when did we lose focus? We lose focus because, man, we're, we're, we're wasting our time fighting the wrong fight. And no, this didn't start in the 20th century. If you remember, the disciples started fighting with each other. You remember that? They had a dispute with each other of which one would be, become the greatest in the, in the kingdom of Jesus. Like, anybody remember that? Remember the two brothers that started fighting, saying, hey, can I sit on your right? Can I sit on the left? Like, are you crazy? Like, Jesus, like, like, like y'all are fighting over the wrong things. The Baptists are fighting the charismatics. We have Christians who spend their time arguing on predestination versus free will, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Does it still exist? Does it not? I'm like, come on, people. We're fighting. We are distracted. And this is not the war that we're supposed to fight. And as long as the enemy can keep us focused on us fighting with each other, the harvest will be plenty and the workers will be few because the workers are preoccupied with stuff that they shouldn't be preoccupied with. And as long as the enemy can preoccupy your mind and your energy and your, 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 like, like all the, your, your time, everything, your money, as long as he can occupy that on Amazon and as long as he can occupy your time on, on things that have no eternal value, church, he's winning every single time. And our productivity keeps going lower and lower rather than climbing. My heart is heavy this morning because we as a church want to embody this which God has desired, but we're so distracted. We're doing everything but going and making disciples of all men. We've lost focus. Social action and activism has that place, but their effect will always be limited at, at best. Like, yes, I, I love, like, I put up a post as well. I said, hey, come on, everybody, boycott Target. And I'm like, looking at me, and I'm like, I'm looking at myself, and I'm like, man, don't we have better things to do than to boycott Starbucks and Target? Like, we, we, we're wasting our time arguing about elections, and, and man, I am not looking forward to next year. I am not. Because I know there are a bunch of Christians that are going to lose focus of the great commission. And they're going to worry about the great election. Because for them, that's the savior. The person that gets elected is going to be their savior. But today, there is a savior of the world that the world needs. The harvest is plenty. And we lose focus because as long as CNN and Fox can pull us in and tell us that this matters... We'll tell ourselves that it matters. The 
Matthew 26, I lose focus when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples in Mark 15. I lose focus of when the Bible says, go and preach to every creature. Go preach. Someone say, preach. Any preachers in the house? Can I see any preachers? Wrong answer. We are all preachers. Each one of you. I know some of you all try to look around. Some of you all try to duck. We are all preachers. God has called us to preach the gospel to the lost and broken world. We live in a critical time to do this. Our country is in such bad shambles spiritually and morally. Hope is not found in the president of the United States. Hope is not found in the stock market. Hope is a name, and his name is Jesus, and the world needs it. The harvest is plenty, but there are few workers that have the audacity and the guts to stand up and call that name and call it hope and tell the world that's looking for peace, hope. Because can I be fair and honest with you? Everybody's looking for something. They're looking for peace. They're looking for hope. They're looking for, they're looking for a way out. They're looking for breakthrough. There's so many churches here in America. Why are people still looking? Like, it like I, I am bewildered. I am, I, I, am, I am disheartened sometimes to know that we are not doing what we're supposed to do. So what you're getting at, Pastor Ashish, what's hindering us? See, when the subject of sharing your faith comes up, what excuses do you have for not sharing your faith? Can I tell you this? 95% of Christians have never led another person to faith in Jesus Christ. Which means 95% of us in this room standing or sitting have not done our due diligence of telling somebody of this blessed hope that we have. That's a scary thought. That is a scary thought. Chris reminded us this a few weeks ago, y'all. Like, that's a scary thought that people in Walmart that we see every day, people at work that we sit by every single day, people that we say hello to, people that are friends with us on Facebook and Instagram, and all of this stuff, they see everything else, and they hear about everything else, and they heard about the favorite restaurant you went to, they heard about all of that stuff that excites you and makes you happy, but they did not hear about Jesus, 95%. Like imagine if half of Christians had led someone to Christ. Like half of the Christians we have in this world, if they had led one person to Christ, imagine the revival that would break through. Forget half, half of the half. If they would lead somebody to Jesus, imagine like it's 50-50 odds. Like that's never a good, good kind of odds. That's, that's never a good odd. But, but, but still, what if 50% of Christians should share the gospel? Like we need to get those numbers high. I'm asking you a very sincere question today. When is the last time? Have you ever, let's not even go to when is the last time. Have you ever led somebody to Jesus Christ? This is my challenge for us today. If not, why? Can I give you three things and we'll pray? The lack of these three things will make us a hobby church. You will be a hobby Christian that shows up on a Sunday morning and does what you're supposed to do, check a few boxes, and you will continue living that way, and, and it will not bother you, church. 
It will not bother that people around us are perishing. Number one, three C's. Number one, compassion. It needs to begin with compassion. Not just compassion, you have to be moved with compassion. Someone say moved with compassion. See, compassion, I'll break down the rest of the three points for you real quick. Compassion needs to give way to conviction. Conviction then will end up producing compulsion. So I want to talk about these three things today. I'm going to talk about compassion, conviction, and compulsion, and then we'll pray. There was a poll conducted as to why people don't share their faith. And can I share, you, share with you some of, the, some of the reasons? Because they can't do it as well as the professionals. Because I don't have all the answers. Because I cannot do it as well as pastor does it. He's, he went to college for it. He's well learned. He has the educational backing. He, come on, somebody. Number one reason. The second reason is you're timid. You're just awkward with the gospel. You just don't know how it should come out of your mouth. The third one is you just don't know how somebody's going to respond. You don't know if they're going to be mad. You're like, Pastor, I just don't want to piss anybody off. Sorry, get anybody mad. I don't, want to, I don't want to get someone, you know, agitated, mad. I have to work with this person. I just want to, I, I want to coexist. Like, there are so many things that is, is, is on your mind. You're afraid that you may have, you may not have answers to all their questions. When they ask you the questions, you're like, I don't have all the answers, Pastor. It's okay if you don't have all the answers. You can actually go up to somebody and you can look at them and you can say, man, I don't know, but let's learn this together. Come with me to church. Let's go to Bibles. We have a small group. Let's go attend the life group together. I'm in this journey of faith as much as you are. If you have questions, I have questions. But it shouldn't give you an excuse to look at, the Lord, look at people and say, I have a heart for you. But the real reason is this, that we don't want to, that we really don't want to. It's ultimately because we don't care. See, when we care about something, it occupies your time. That's why I asked you, what is your hobby? What are the things that you love doing? We talked about this last week as well. Like any of your kids love video games? Like they're in front of it, they're dedicated, they are, they're setting aside time for it. We talked about devotion last week. Some of us love classic cars or cars in general and you will spend copious amounts of time, time in your week researching about cars and car parks and, and modifications and blah, 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 blah. For some of us it's basketball. For some of us it's gym. When you care about something, you make time for it. My question is, in the middle of all of this, where is evangelism? When you have a busy week, I get it. When you have a busy week and you get a Saturday off, the one thing that you want to do on a Saturday is what? Just chill. You want to relax. You want to watch some TV. You don't want to go anywhere. You want to sleep in. As soon as you get back from work, all you want to do is chill. But where is compassion? Where are we looking at the lost and saying, man, I have a heart for the lost. It has to start with compassion and concern. If you don't have compassion, it's impossible to get you out of your house to go and evangelize. It's impossible to get you up of that seat at work to go and look at somebody and say, man, can I introduce you to Jesus? Can I pray with you? Is there something that's bothering you? This is a something that I can agree with you in prayer. They may be a prayerful person. They may be not. It doesn't matter, but you did your job. You did your ask. It's Spurgeon that said the Holy Spirit will move them by first moving you. 
But the problem is so many people don't, are not moved by the gospel because you are not moved with the message. Don't do it as something that you ought to do. This is not a mission assignment that God is pushing you on. This is a mission lifestyle. We don't have a, a particular mission trip that you have to do for two years and that's your quota for the rest of your life. I've done my mission trip. No, no, no. Mission lifestyle means every single day I have the duty and the obligation to let people know about the love of Jesus. Like what motivated Jesus? The Bible says he, was, he saw these people that were hurting and broken and lost and he was moved with compassion. See, I don't think for once that the Christian does not have compassion in some aspect. Now, I don't want you to com confuse compassion with pity. The problem is that many of us are moved enough to feel pity. We're like, oh, man. We'll probably throw a few dollars at it. But, not moved enough, but, but we're not moved enough to get up and do something about that which we feel pity for. Getting up and doing something is compassion. Compassion without action is pity. Compassion that leads to action is evangelism. Jesus looks around, sees through the layers and the facades and the brokenness of people. Like, what do we feel when we see brokenness around us? Like, are we so in tune with God that we can actually identify when we see brokenness around us? When we see the addict around us, when we see the cheat or the vulgar, when we see two homosexual people around you, like, do you feel that you have a burden? Are we seeing people or are we just seeing the sin? Jesus saw people, not just the sin, church. Because as long as you'll only see the sin, all you'll do is feel pity and feel disgusted and not do anything about it. Because as long as Satan can tell you, feel repelled and feel disgusted by the sin somebody is living in, he will not move you to action. See, Jesus went the extra mile. The heart of Jesus will make us look at sin with contempt, but treat the sinner with compassion. Am I talking to somebody? That's the heart of Jesus. He doesn't take away the sin. He doesn't minimize the sin. He calls sin, sin. But he is gravitated towards men and women that are struggling and are broken and are hurting. And he says, I am here for you. You have all of me and I have all of you. And because of that, he captivated people and people thronged at him. Because he didn't allow the lie of just the sin to hold him back. But what would people think if I talked to that person? What would people think if I engaged with that person? What would, all of these what ifs. When we start looking at it like Jesus looks at a church, this is transformative. Because if you look at the pattern of compassion in Jesus, he looks at this woman at the well. Jesus doesn't lecture her about the evils of immorality, but he saw behind the sin, the emptiness, and he, and he appealed to that. When he saw Zacchaeus, he could have rebuked him for the greed and the theft and his lifestyle of thievery. But he came to seek and save that which was lost. Someone say lost. Can, can I just get your undivided attention for the next two minutes? If you can just get this revelation. Just get this. Listen so closely to this. This is so simple, yet so profound. Your understanding of compassion will change 
when you understand this, only things of value can be lost. Only things of value can be lost. Only valuable things. What do you mean, Pastor? You don't file a police report when you lose 25 cents. Am I talking to somebody? Just because it's lost, it doesn't lose value. It's termed lost because it, it has value. The gold coin that went missing, that it's, it's lost and, and, and it's of so much value. It's only one. No, 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 but it's valuable to me. So, so she goes looking for that coin. It's only one sheep. You still have 99. No, but the one is valuable. What Jesus communicates is that which is lost might be minimal and trivial to many, but that which is lost has so much value. Hence, I leave the 99 behind, and he goes after the one. Lost in the biblical context means it's simply misplaced or it's simply broken. The world feels undervalued because we see them without value. The sinner seems un, like, like, feels like he doesn't belong because all they do is when they come into the church, they feel judgment. If the, they don't look like you, if they don't dress like you, if they have tattoos all over their body, if they have piercings all over their body, if they have a mohawk that's a different color, they don't look like me. Maybe they're a sinner. Maybe they're a Christian. But it doesn't change the fact that they are lost or God calls them lost because they have value. Right, Rebecca? They, they have value. They intrinsically have a value. And what is that value? They were created in the image of God. And because of that, they are worth everything. And Jesus counts them and he says, I died for the whole world. And that includes that person. The harvest is plenty, but the workers don't identify the plenty. They're so caught up in their own likes and their dislikes and what they want and what they don't want. The church is just a hobby. We're called to find the lost and polish and restore them and show them that they have value. That's the mission of the church. When somebody sees a burning fire, uh, a, a house that's on fire, not everybody will run to it. Only people that know that they have something valuable inside will run towards that fire. See, the problem is not a lot of us have that heart to say they are my brothers and my sisters. Not a lot of people look at that man at Walmart not a lot of people look at that brokenness and say, hey, I have to be held accountable for their soul one day. But today I'm encouraging us today, look at them as people of value. Jesus was always moved. We have to care, church. We have to care. i got to close this out. But In Romans 9, verse 2 and 3, the Bible says this, I have great sorrow, Paul says, and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? 
For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. He was so much burdened and in pain for the people that were losing, that, that were being lost and they're broken and far away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I wish I could have been the substitute. Number one, the lack of compassion will make us a hobby church. The day we lose compassion for the lost, we will be a hobby church. Commission church, we need to wake up. You might not be a member of this church. You might be just visiting. You might be a, you might be, you might be a friend of a family member. This might be a first Sunday here. But we encourage our church week after week that we are not any other ordinary church. We will refuse to be a hobby church. We will refuse to be a Sunday church. We want to be a Sunday till Sunday church where we will go with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we want to be evangelistic. We want to go to the utmost parts of the world. And we want to make evangelism a priority. We have to care. Point number two. Conviction. The second C that will make us a hobby church is our lack of conviction. In verse 38, the Bible says, therefore pray earnestly. Uh, Matthew 9 and verse 38 says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. You know, Nehemiah in the Old Testament, when he was broken and torn, why? Because he saw the walls had fallen and the city was under ruin. And you know what the Bible says? He just didn't feel sorry. He didn't send $100. He didn't donate. He didn't say, I feel bad for them. He got up, resigned his job, and he went and did something about it. After the despair came determination. The determination that I am Nehemiah, I am nothing of significance, I am nobody of significance, but somebody has to do it. And if I have to be that somebody, I will do it. I will make the difference. The church needs to stop praying for laborers and praying for missionaries, and we got to be the laborers and be the missionaries. Stop praying for God to raise up missionaries to send to the world. When our, when our kids come up to us and tell us, Dad, I want to go into ministry, you bless them and you send them. Don't argue with them about how they're not going to have bills. They're not going to have money to pay for their bills. Bless them and say, if God has called you to it, go. Don't worry about where your next meal is going to come from. If God has called you to it. Oof. What are we going to do about it? Often we, we say, man, we don't want to be insensitive. We don't want to come off harsh to our coworkers. If they don't want to hear the gospel, I don't want to force it down their throats. Jesus would not have done that. Yes, Jesus would have. Because he was hope. For that woman, that Samaritan, he was the only hope for her. And he did stand there and he did pursue her. Your mission field is right in front of you, church. Our mission fields are right in front of us, and so many of us are ignoring it because we don't have a heart for it. Here's the thing. If you feel that you're being insensitive or that you'll step on their toes too much, here's, here's the hard truth. The fact is that either in this life or the next, they will be confronted with the fact that they are sinners separated from a holy God. Please understand this, church. 
If you don't do it, they will have to face the music one day where Jesus will look at them and say, get away from me. I do not know you. There is no salvation except in the name of Jesus. Will it be more offensive when you say it to them right now where they have a chance? Or will it be more when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you? That's your coworker. That's my neighbor. That's my cousin. That's my uncle. That's somebody that I know that is deeply rooted in addiction and I have a role to play in their salvation. My problem is this, the, or the church's problem is this. Many of us don't believe hell is real. But we don't care. Because if we care, we'll do everything in our power to get people out of there. John, you can come help me. Worship team, you guys can get ready. The lack of conviction will make us a hobby church. The third one is this, compulsion. See, I don't claim to be an agricultural major by any means, but the last time I looked, harvesting was done outside. Houseplants are cute, but houseplants don't give you no harvest. So many of us are okay as long as we have houseplants in the church. They're cute. Other Christians, uh, for, for so many of us, churches are all about, hey, let's bring the church in. Let's bring more believers in. Let's witness to more believers. Hey, if you left that church, come. You can be a part of this church. But it's never a, hey, we have a heart for, the, and, and it's a messy business. Houseplants is not hezzy, uh, messy business. Come on, I'm not talking to somebody. But the Bible says laborers are few, which means this is outside work. It's not inside work. It's nails. It's nails getting dirty. Come on. It's, it's, it's crazy. It, it involves time. It involves dedication. Harvesting is done in fields. So that suggests to me that we've got to go outside of these four walls in order to get into the fields. But here's what Jesus is telling us. You don't need to do the work. I have done the work. You just have to go and get the harvest. Come on. The work was done on the cross, church. It's not your ability or inability to convince anybody about Jesus. But pastor, I'm not trained. I don't know where the words come. That's what anointing is for. I will anoint your words. There are people that, that are in here that needs to know. When you start talking to people, it's not what you know that comes out of your mouth. It's what you know, not know, what you have no idea of that will surprise you. And the utterance of your mouth. Anybody been in that situation? I have. I've sat in, in front of people. I'm like, Lord, what am I about to say to this person? What am I about to say to this Hindu person? What am I supposed to say to my Muslim friend? What am I supposed to say to my cat? I don't know, Lord. Help me out here. And out of nowhere, God gives me the utterance. I'm like, where did that come from? The work is done. The Bible says the harvest is plenty, which means it's just sitting there and it's not being gleaned. It's not being picked. And they're waiting, waiting. The world is waiting, church. Let me put it like this. We've got to get off our blessed assurance and go into the highways and the hedges and compel men, women, boys and girls to come to Jesus Christ. That's it. 
what's happening here on a Sunday morning, like Prince said, healings and deliverance and breakthroughs need not just happen to us as a community. I can't wait to, for people that are lost and struggling and are hurting and broken to come and experience what we're experiencing, joy in the house of the Lord. You know the word laborer, it, it comes from the Greek word ergatese, which means to be a toiler, to be a worker, to do above and beyond. Gallopol asked over six million people, what would it take to get you to church? Six million people. They asked them, what would it take to get you to church? Do you know what the number one answer was? The number one answer was someone to ask me to attend. Six million people. And the number one answer was, I'm not, it's not, I'm scared. It's someone to, you know the number of people that have walked into this building? And the number of testimonies I've heard of men and women that have dr driven up to the church in desperate need of a touch of God and they'll sit out in the parking lot some of y'all know these stories. They're sitting out in the parking lot and they're scared to come in. Because they probably have to sit by themselves when they walk in these doors. Or probably they've been to a church where as soon as they walked in, they looked at them up and down. They've probably been to a place where they were judged by their appearance or judged by how they dressed or how they smelt. I'm, please get my heart here. They were judged because the color of their skin. And they are scared to give God another chance, Vicky, because if it has happened before, it'll happen again. But when somebody walks in here alone, how many of us have the heart to say, hey, I'm sitting by myself. I can go sit next to them. I could be like, hey, can I sit next to you? That's why Prince said it's so important to just say hello to somebody because you have no ideas why somebody needs to hear the words, God bless you. Or how are you? How's your week? That's why it's so important for us to not talk to the same people Sunday after Sunday in the lobby, y'all. I get it, you're excited to see them, but go and talk to somebody, touch base with somebody that needs that and you have no idea that they need it, but it will make a world of a difference. Somebody at your workplace that's just waiting for an invitation. Somebody from school that's just waiting for an invitation. Your neighbors have never seen the insides of a church and they have no idea how their kids are going to be blessed by going to a church. Of the poll conducted among Christians... They asked, how did you come to know the Lord? 0.001% said, through a television program or crusade. 2% said, cold turkey evangelism. Somebody knocked on my door. Somebody met me in, the, in Walmart. 2 to 4% said, it was through a church program like Christmas or Easter. 3 to 6% said, Sunday school, kids church. I grew up in kids church and learned about Jesus. 4 to 6% said, I just walked into a church. 
six to 8% said a minister, a pastor shared the gospel with you. 74% said a friend or a relative. Don't tell me ministry is for pastors. Pastors have one job. That's for me to equip you. No, and I get off the stage and I have the job that you do to go and witness to the people. Please do not detach yourselves from the big calling. You see, when we realistically engage in the working of laboring for the kingdom, ooh, I'm telling you, the full revelation of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 comes into play. And, and this is what it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon you and that He has anointed you. What does that mean? He has given you power to minister to all kinds of needy people, to preach the gospel to the poor. Church, the lack of compulsion to do something will make us a hobby church. Get out. Say, I'm tired. I want to lead a life group in my college campus. Start a Bible study in your workplace. Send out an email to a few of your coworkers and say, hey, work starts at 9 or 8. How many of you want to get together for a Bible study? Oh, brother, I work on, at home online, Zoom. Stop making excuses. Need somebody for coffee. Stand up to me. Stand up with me, church. Mm. But the beauty of that passage is this. It says the Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Everybody that has said yes to Jesus, remember the Holy Spirit is upon you. And then there's this another thing uh, that he says, and he has anointed you. Someone say anointed me. There is a special anointing. And anointing means a power that God gives you in order for you to go and be that which you think that you cannot be. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of God came upon David. The Spirit of God came upon the disciples. You know what happens when the Spirit of the Lord comes up? That's called the anointing. It was an anointing for a specific task, for a specific season. And that anointing has the ability to break yokes. Like that anointing that God has placed in your life is a special anointing for a special season, for a special purpose, for a special location. And when you go in with the anointing, be assured that with or without your knowledge, it's breaking yokes of, of disappointment, of depression, of bondage, of sickness. It is breaking stuff. But know that you have the anointing. Like we do all Sundays, I'm going to pray, I'm going to close out, and as I close out, I'm going to open the altar if anybody needs prayers, and also, just as some of y'all need to step out in faith today, just to, to do something that you've never done before, and saying, God, I've been too relaxed still now, but I want to do something. I want to be a part of the evangelistic ministry here at church. Eric Cook and I were talking about this the other day and we talked about it and we said, man, we, he, he, was, he was so encouraged in his heart to say, I want to start an evangelistic outreach ministry where we can go and evangelize to people. And I said, Eric, this is exactly what God's putting in my heart to preach about in a few weeks. And this is a confirmation to some of us. 
that team is getting geared up and Eric is getting geared up as soon as him and Rebecca come back from their vacation. They're getting geared up to get involved with our community, go out there and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Whether you're equipped or not, whether you know all the answers or not, God is looking at you and saying the workers are few. The workers are few. And how many of us can say, God, count me in? How many of us can look at, look at Jesus and say, put me in, coach. I'm ready. I'm, like, how many of you are thirsty? How many of you are, like, literally walking around, pacing around, just waiting for your opportunity? Like, stop being bench warmers. That's it. We're not bench warmers anymore. We're not warming our seats and pews in this church anymore. We have to get up, get out of these walls, break down the walls, go into a community. Let's invite people to what God is doing in this place. Father, we thank you for what you've done. Church, the Holy Spirit is putting on my heart to pray for people this morning. If that's you, the, the, the worship team is about to lead us in a moment of worship. And if that's you, if that's you saying, Lord, send me, that's me, Lord. I want to do whatever you want me to do. That's me. I want to get out of my comfort zone. It's going to take 10 minutes of your time this morning, but get out of your comfort zones. Do something, something that you've never done before. Say, Lord, equip me. And this is what I'm calling you for. I'm calling you to be equipped. I'm calling you for that anointing. I'm calling you for that touch. I'm calling you for that. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, that special anointing that equips. And some of you all probably have a person in your mind. Get anointed. Get that anointing up. Say, Lord, fill me with confidence. Fill me with boldness so I can approach that person. I can approach that family member. I can approach the... Ask for that anointing. That's what the anointing is. The anointing fills you for a particular task. For a particular task. We're going to spend some time in prayer. I'm going to ask Prince to join me in the front. I'm going to ask Vicky and Jeff to join us in the front just for praying for people. If there's anybody that needs to just step out and just needs to say, Lord, I, I need a touch from you. Would you touch me? Would you move in my life? Would you do something special? Would you do something amazing? Lord, would you fill me with your strength? Would you fill me with power? Just come forward. Just step out of your seats. Just get prayed over. Just stand in the front. Somebody will come up to you and pray with you. Just do it. While worship is going on, just step out of your comfort zones and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Come in. Father, we thank you for what you've done, what you're doing in this place. We thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us this morning so powerfully. I pray, God, that your word will come in power and in might. I pray that this word will do a work this week as we go back to our homes and as we ponder on this word, as we study this word. Father, I pray that a further and deep revelation of your son would be instilled within us. That we will have a yearning to not be a hobby church. To not be a Sunday morning church, but to be a Sunday to Sunday church. That when we wake up in the morning, we will wake up with a compassion for people around us that are lost, for people that do not know you. That we will be broken, God, for the broken around us. Why? Because they have value and they are valuable to you. You don't want to see anybody perish that none may perish. That's what the word reminds us. That none may perish. So Father, I pray that that will be our motivation. That that will be our driving force this morning. Strengthen us, encourage us. Anoint us. 
strengthen us as we make some decisions this morning. In Jesus' name, church, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance your direction. May he give you peace that passeth all understanding. Feel free to come forward, worship, get prayed over. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We love bringing you the word on so many different platforms. We are so thankful for what God is doing in and through us. We'd love for you to subscribe so you don't miss out. And don't forget to share this message if it has blessed you.